goes without being said, but I'll say it anyways. You can't walk up to someone's front door when they're having a mental health crisis, they have dementia, and shoot them after talking to them for 30, after yelling at them for 38 seconds. That is a violation of your constitutional rights. I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking about the shooting of 75-year-old Amelia Baca by an officer from the Las Cruces Police Department. Family members say she suffered from signs of dementia, which was undiagnosed. When police arrived, they found the elderly woman holding a large kitchen knife in each hand. Videos obtained by the Sun News show that Baca was shot as she took a step toward the responding officer. Our efforts in reporting this story have been rife with transparency issues, stemming from the city of Las Cruces and the Las Cruces Police Department. Days passed before the department acknowledged the fatal shooting. Eventually, they named the victim, and our subsequent records request shined a little more light on what happened that Saturday before Easter. There are a lot of issues to dissect in this, both in our reporting and in the facts of the case. Why did Amelia Baca have to die? Why weren't less lethal measures used? Unfortunately, we don't have the answers to those questions. Someday we might, The incident is still under investigation by the Doniana County Officer-Involved Task Force. This week, we'll talk to Justin Garcia, who covers public safety for the Sun News, about this story and the challenges of covering it. First, Justin, thanks for taking time to talk to us today. Yeah, of course. I guess the first question is what we know right now about the shooting on April 16th. Well, right now we know quite a bit about it. Uh, we, as of uh, this week, the police released, or I, su- I should say the city of Las Cruces released a uh, the body cam of the officer who shot Emilia Baca. And along with several other body cams of, of the officers who arrived in the immediate aftermath and, and interviewed family members within the hours that followed the shooting and... Yeah. So, I mean, as of the only thing, really, I mean, it might be an easier question to answer, you know, what do we not know? And and right now, the only thing that hasn't been confirmed is is the name of the officer and and the status of the investigation, which, as far as we know, is is still ongoing, uh, although kind of what that means specifically has not been disclosed. The original call out made it clear that Amelia Baca was suffering from some sort of mental health disorder, right? Kind of take us through that timeline of the police response from the time the call came in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The uh, the call came in initially, and uh, a woman who was inside the house with Amelia Baca, um, Baca's daughter, one of Baca's daughters, Jennifer Enriquez, was uh, made the call and, and was calling for, specifically she requested for police or an ambulance or, or just someone to come and help her deal with the situation with her mother, who was apparently having trouble recognizing her family members and, and had uh, had picked up two knives and, and according to Jennifer, was stabbing uh, the floor at one point. And, and uh, so Jennifer was 
just calling for aid. She also called her sister, asking for her to come over and help. And so she was just kind of, you know, reaching out for for aid at that time. Then police arrived on the scene, and and uh, you know, within uh, with less than a minute of when the officer arrived, he shot and killed Amelia Baca. And and during that time, Baca's granddaughter uh, informed the officer that Baca was suffering from. Um, a form of mental illness and, and dementia. And at some point, it's it's unclear from the body camera if the officer acknowledges this or if the officer is acknowledging the arrival of another police officer. How so? Well, you can hear you can hear the granddaughter say, you know, oh, you know, she has. This is when the officer has the gun out and he's uh, he's yelling at uh, Amelia Baca to to drop the knives, and Amelia Baca is responding in Spanish and and he's yelling at her in English. You can hear the granddaughter say, like, she's mentally ill, she's not well, she's not well. And you can hear the officer say, okay, okay. That's also about the same time that the second officer arrives. And you can also hear the second officer kind of start to essentially act as a as a wall in between the first officer and the two other family members. And so, yeah, that that kind of, it's, it's you know, obviously that's that's one of those questions that only the officer himself can can never answer and, and you know we haven't been granted an interview with him yet so the day after the shooting i spoke with a family member and passed that along to you justin to kind of mm-hmm. see what we could find out and that was some of the earliest information that we were able to get on this from someone who kind of had a first-hand account yeah first first-hand account if not a second-hand account but yeah absolutely now there was a uh news conference on thursday what did we learn from that we learned learned that albuquerque attorney sam bragman who also represents the family of antonio valenzuela uh, who was another man killed by police officers a few years ago that he has been hired by the family to uh, sue the las cruces police department over over this incident as well bregman presented a, a narrative of events from the family's perspective that called the officer a murderer and that said that uh that said that there was absolutely no amount of de-escalation that occurred that day and that what happened was a was an absolutely horrible example of, of, a, of a man walking up to a woman's house and killing her within a minute of meeting her. Many of you were here two years ago when I was here with another family, the Valenzuelas. After they had a family member murdered by a Las Cruces police officer. Sadly, we are here again today. And this time it's the Baca family. The Baca family has suffered a terrible and tragic, horrific loss as their mother and grandmother, Amelia Baca, was also murdered by a Las Cruces police officer. In fact, let me be blunt. Amelia Baca was executed by the Las Cruces Police Department on April 16th of this year. The family was also present during that press conference. Um, four of Baca's daughters and two of her granddaughters, including including the daughter and granddaughter who were present when Amelia Baca was, was killed. And, you know, for the most part, the family stayed quiet. The family, but also was, was made sure to be there. And, and I think it was important for them to kind of put themselves out there and, and gain a little bit of control of the situation. Uh, one of the family members did answer some questions about Amelia Baca and kind of talked about who she was as a person. And, and so we learned a little bit about that as well, that 
Amelia Baca came to the United States when she was in her 30s and, you know, she worked a variety of jobs until she was able to buy her own house. Like I said, my mom was one of those ladies that she used to always tell you, don't sit on, don't put your feet on the couch. Don't put your feet on the couch, they don't. <coughs> and she always was in her garden with her flowers, with her trees. I mean, anything that made you put on the ground would grow. Literally anything. She had a great home. She always was happy when the kids were around. Before she always used to get mad when we used to make messes. Now she'd be like, just sit on the wall, let them be. She was just happy we were there. I mean, like, the kids, it was just, she was to that point in her life where she enjoyed just having her family around her. And just kind of lastly explain, you know, what the loss means to your family. It's really hard because when you think about her, like we know she came here in her 30s, you know, an immigrant, hardworking, worked in the fields, took care of other people's children, worked really hard, you know, to be where she was at, that little house that she bought with a lot of effort. And for her to die in that place like that. She raised uh, several children, including the four daughters and, and two granddaughters and several great-grandchildren during her life. And uh, and actually the house that, that she had purchased for herself was also the house that she was killed in. So we'll, we'll see in terms of, you know, what happens going forward here. Sam Bregman has said that he plans on filing two lawsuits, one in federal court and one in state court, um, just kind of corresponding to the different potential tort claims that... Um, that he feels like the family has, has suffered in this case. As far as the state the state case is concerned, we will be filing suit for the various torts, obviously, including aggravated battery resulting in death, but also the violation of the New Mexico state constitution pursuant to the New Mexico Civil Rights Act. We also will be filing federal federal court for the violation of the constitutional rights of Ms. Baca under the Fourth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, obviously there's been a lot of talk, especially around the newsroom, and we've actually written several times about the transparency issues that we've encountered while trying to report this story. Can you kind of explain those in greater detail? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to police killings, there's a lot. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of it's kind of rife with transparency issues all the time. <laughs> um First, it kind of started out with with, you know, a lack of public information about or I should say a lack of official information about the case. As you noted earlier, we were made aware of the shooting by the family within maybe 12 hours that it occurred. And, and we had done an interview and we were talking with the family and, and all of that stuff. We didn't receive a, an official kind of declaration that the shooting had occurred and that a woman was dead until... Two days later, I believe. Yeah, I believe it happened on a, a Saturday evening, a Saturday afternoon. And, yep. April, and yeah, April 16th. And then we got that information in April. We got that official press release, which did not have Amelia Baca's name in it. But we got that official press release April 18th, just before a city council meeting on, on that Monday. So that was followed by, you know, the city not really... Uh, answering our, our questions for the most part. Our questions were largely like, hey, we just want to know more about what happened uh, from your guys' perspective, just updates on the investigation and all that stuff. And then a video that Sam Bregman described as a propaganda video uh, was released by the city that 
essentially was a, a series of selected clips, including um, clips from the 911 call, clips from the body camera that hadn't been released yet. Vo- you know, there was voiceover in the video. It was it was a, it was a produced video that attempted to highlight the fact that Emilia Baca was carrying at least two knives at the time of the shooting. About 6:34 p.m. April 16, 2022, the Mesilla Valley Regional Dispatch Authority received a 911 call from an address on the 800 block of Fur Avenue in Las Cruces, New Mexico. The caller advised that her mother, 75-year-old Amelia Baca, who suffers from dementia, was armed with a knife and threatening to kill her. The caller stated that she was hiding in a bedroom with her husband and a small child and that another daughter was also in the home. The following are portions of that 911 call. 911 emergency, what city? Las Cruces, New Mexico. What is the address of location for your emergency? Um, for FIR. Okay. And what's going on? I really need an officer, an ambulance, or someone because my mother is getting aggressive right now. She's 75 and she has dementia. Dementia, I'm hiding in a room because she's threatening to kill me. Does she have any weapons? I don't know if she got weapons from the kitchen, and I have a little one here. Child, I'm asking, are you with your child? Yes, I'm with my child, but I'm freaking out right now. And do you know if she's on any type of medication? I'm not sure if she took her medication this morning. My daughter, she's in her room, and my mother's still out there with the knife. Okay. So she does have a knife in her hand? I believe so because it, it sounds like it. Yeah, she actually does have a knife. Okay, well, do you know what she's doing with the knife? Um, hitting the floor saying she's gonna d- kill me. Okay, man, they should be arriving soon, okay? Do you know if an officer is also coming? Yes, an officer will be there and then uh, a, um, we do have a medical unit on the way just in case. Okay, thank you. Let's try throwing hot water now. Hot water? Yes. Mami, está asustando a la niña. About 6.44 p.m., the first officer arrives at the home. The officer makes his way through the narrow walkway. The officer announces police department and contacts two women inside the residence. The officer asks them to step out. Police department. As the women exit the residence, one tells the officer that Ms. Baca has the knives in her hands, while the other woman tells the officer to be careful with Ms. Baca. Amelia Baca steps into the threshold of the doorway, armed with two large kitchen knives. The officer, who is in close proximity to Amelia Baca, gives repeated commands for her to drop the knives. The still images are from the body-worn camera of the officer. In these images, Amelia Baca can clearly be seen holding two large knives, one in each hand. At one point, Amelia Baca transfers both knives into her right hand. Amelia Baca never complies with commands to drop the knives and moves toward the officer. Uh, the video didn't outright say that the shooting was justified, or, but it certainly, you know, in my mind, it certainly was attempting to suggest that that. Um, that the shooting was was something close to just justified it's kind of a nod in that direction yeah because you know when they when you go out of your way to highlight the knives and and point out that and and 
you know, you sort of ask the question, okay, well, why, why, why did the, did the person who made this video feel compelled to, to do that? And so video also raised a lot of questions and two, in terms of how this video affects the investigation moving forward. Uh, the, I, I've mentioned this investigation a couple of times. The, there's a, a task force called the Doniana County officer involved task force, which investigates officer involved shootings as, as police refer to them. But, you know, we, we in the public and the media just kind of colloquially refer to them as police shootings or police killings. They investigate these sort of incidents and <laughs> that process is, this task force is made up of, of folks from the different departments in the area, including Donated County Sheriff's Office, Las Cruces Police Department, the NMSU Police Department, and then the other collection of agencies within Donated County. So we're all still waiting for that process to conclude. And once the investigation is complete, the police officers will submit their their findings to the district attorney, Gerald Byers, who has a has a tough decision in front of him about whether or not he's going to choose to to charge this officer with a with murder or, or manslaughter or, or whatever potential crime might be applicable to his eyes. And then we'll see what happens from there. That's absolutely true. And that process of investigating police shootings is notoriously opaque. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It's something that we're trying to figure, we're trying to learn more about even as, as we, we record this podcast. Um, what we know right now is that at least according to one of the videos, a Las Cruces Police Department detective Kenny Davis is one of, if not the leader of this investigation. And, and of course, you know, that kind of raises some questions about objectivity and, and, and that Con- sort of thing. Conflicts of interest. Conflicts of interest. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of questions still around the task force and how it works and, and that sort of thing. The other element, I suppose, that that kind of goes into this, and Justin, you probably encountered this in, in your reporting on previous cases is that the district attorney's office has a, a close working relationship with the police, the area police departments. They work with these people day in and day out, you know, to prosecute cases. Um, right. And so it presents a, a, a unique challenge, you know, I think in uh, on that front. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you go from, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in those those meetings. I'm not in those rooms and stuff. So I, I'm not 100 percent sure about kind of how everybody thinks about their roles in those conversations. But, yeah, I mean, these are it, obviously, you know, it, it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a, a police officer or a lawyer to know that when you're working with somebody on, on in within one institution and one day and the next day you're charging that person with murder, or charging someone else from someone else in that institution with murder, which is, you know, the most severe crime that exists in our society. <laughs> it, it, it can get complicated. It, it certainly has the potential for rocking the boat. It's yeah, it does, especially especially in the instance in which one group doesn't think that the other group is being treated fairly. And then suddenly the whole relationship is tainted. And, and so it's complicated for sure. It's it's not a. It is not a, a clear and simple process. I think we can we can say that without without worrying about it. Have we learned? Uh, well, are there are there any other transparency issues that we've encountered since the release of that that uh, produced video? Well, I guess it depends. You know, I mean, it depends on your expectation of transparency, right? Like, I mean, obviously for me, 
I would have liked for the police to release the body camera video day of. The police would obviously find that to be impossible. So transparency is one of these things where we kind of use it as this very general term, but in reality, it it means different things to different people in the context of, of what can be done and when. So it's difficult to answer. I mean, I, I personally, I hope that going forward, there's more weight put onto these these sorts of situations from from the city of Las Cruces and, and the Las Cruces Police Department. I think, I think you know, I, I mean, especially you go to that press conference and you see the family, and, and part of that process was we all, you know, the the all the gaggle of of reporters and the family all together watched the video and the uh, the produced it, video. No, no, the video of the uh, the, the, the released of, the released video. Yeah, that, the raw video, I guess we could call that it. That the the um, Sun News also um, was able to uh, acquire through a public records request. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And and I think watching that video, you know, I think watching that video in that context was important because it showed that even though the family is is you know attempting to seek um, some amount of of. What's the right word here, Damien? Not Re- compensation, not reparate. It's not reparation. Remuneration. Remuneration. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. I appreciate that. Uh, e- even though the family is attempting to seek some amount of, of remuneration, I, the very core of this is the fact that their their grandmother and, and a woman who really seemed like the matriarch of their family was killed in front of them in their house. And regardless of anything else, Regardless of anything else, that is awful and tragic and terrible. And, you know, we really didn't get that, the acknowledgement of that, until a press release um, came out shortly after this press conference, a press release from the city of Las Cruces acknowledging that. From uh, city so, manager Evo Peely. That's correct. Yeah, from the city manager. So I, I, you know, I hope going forward that there's a little more weight because, you know, I think... It is certainly complicated, for sure. I mean, I think the police want to make sure that an investigation is done. The family wants to make sure that some amount of justice is able to be had. The district attorney wants to be able to have all the information in front of him to be able to, you know, make the right call here. And the public wants to know what the hell happened. And those are those are a lot of different. Those are a lot of different, often conflicting desires. And so I don't know. I think I hope I hope. You know, when this happens again, I hope that there is uh, a, a little more acknowledgement. Uh, obviously, I think the most important value here is the public knows what happens. That's why I'm a journalist. Uh, but uh, so I hope that that, that value is, is put pretty high up on the priority list as, as decisions are being made about what's be, what should be released and not sh- what should be held. Justin, this also raises the issue of how local and area law enforcement officials respond to mental health crises like this, which certainly from what we've been able to gather appears to be the case. There's also been a lot of talk about the county's crisis triage center and how it's been underutilized. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, you know, you look at the situation and you would you'd kind of assume that this might be a good opportunity for that. Right. This this was clearly a woman in crisis. Her family recognized that she was in crisis. And so they called police and they called 911 for help. And the idea of that center is supposed to be able to give police officers to give police officers an alternative option to arrest. Right. Instead of saying 
oh, here's this person in crisis. Maybe instead of arresting them, I could convince them to come with me to this crisis triage center. Um, and again, I go back to the whole thing of, you know, less than a minute passed between this officer arriving at this at Amelia Baca's house and the officer killing Amelia Baca. I don't know if that if the officer was thinking about the crisis triage center in that moment. Only he knows that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, my, my colleague, Michael McDevitt, has obviously done a lot more reporting about the, the triage center than I have. But, but based off of my conversations with him and, and reading of his stories, I think uh, it, it's pretty clear that the center is not as utilized as I think a lot of people were hoping. And it really does sort of raise some questions about, well, this was the exact type of incident that this center is for. Right. And so especially why? after it sat vacant um, for, so long. For, yeah. for five or six or seven years, you know, waiting on somebody to come in and operate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And now that that's there, it's it's unfortunate that it's unfortunate that it's not being used, you know, for whatever reason, because I think I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. As this moves forward, it seems like we're going to be looking at a wrongful death civil suit. Can you explain mm-hmm. that? We learned a little bit more about that, I I think, in uh, in Thursday's press conference. Yeah, a little bit more. I think, again, I, I don't, the, the claim has not yet been filed, so we'll see exactly kind of what comes out of it. But, um, you know, I think the best place, <laughs> I think the best place to go if you wanted to learn more about that might be a previous podcast that you and I recorded about um, Josh Dunn. And not to get too into the weeds, but in that case, Josh Dunn was a, a uh, was a veteran who was undergoing a mental health crisis, had locked himself inside of a, a hotel room and was ultimately killed by police. Uh, police said that he had a gun at the time and that he was making threats to officers and threats to himself. And and um, and the standoff ended with with him being killed. Uh, a few years later, his widow sued the departments and and the city settled for, I don't remember how much it was, but but if people are interested, they could go back and check that. Check out that podcast where we, we spoke to Josh Dunn's uh, widow and, and kind of asked her, asked her about that and the wrongful death and what she wanted to use the money for and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, that was an incident in which the district attorney at the time found that Police had acted within the police did not commit any crimes when they killed Josh Dunn. And even still, the city of Las Cruces decided that it would be better to settle that that lawsuit and at least in some form acknowledge that Josh's death was was wrongful. So, yeah, I mean, well, well, while not um, admitting any wrongdoing. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of legal nonsense, right? Like we didn't do anything wrong, but here's a bunch of money acknowledging that if this person were still, was still alive because of, or this person is no longer alive because of our actions and that you have been harmed because of that. Or perhaps acknowledging that if it were to, to proceed to through the, the legal system that a jury would find in her favor. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's really interesting. Uh, clearly we've, we've stumbled upon a trope in this podcast <laughs> about how, how law enforcement responds to mental health crises. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, I hope our readers and, and listeners stay tuned because I think this is not the last that they'll hear about, you know, police response to mental health crises within the next couple of weeks. But 
you know, you know what I, I going back to that Josh Dunn one, I, I really one of the comments that really struck out to me from that that I had brought attention to the last time you and I spoke about this kind of thing was when um, Sergeant Bob McCord, who, you know, leads the crisis intervention stuff at the Las Cruces Police Department, he mentioned to me that. You know, officers are put in the situation when when they see when they believe that someone represents a public safety threat, which means a, a threat to that this person could kill or seriously harm themselves or someone else that, you know, they're trained to 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 end that threat. And that kind of limits their options. Right. And you could you could see you could imagine what that's what somebody has been trained to do. Things like the. Crisis Triage Center, which we talked about earlier, options like the Crisis Triage Center become not options. And so it's it's. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really awful situation, and I think it's really complicated and nuanced. And at the end of the day, like at the end of the day, this family lost somebody who was clearly really important to them. And and yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but. That n- not necessarily the the Josh Dunn situation because that was mm-hmm. before the crisis triage center got up and running, but the Amelia Baca situation could have ended with a car ride rather than a killing. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. and this ways. is this is certainly Monday morning uh, quarterbacking, but sure. that's a reality. You know, it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That it didn't have to end that way. I I, I don't think anyone watching that video. Uh, who watches that video will look at that and say that that was the only way that that situation had to end. And, you know, I mean, that that's that's kind of one of the things that I think makes this a really compelling story and a really complicated story as well. That I mean, like I said, we'll see what happens when this investigation wraps up and, and what the district attorney decides. But and it's to that end, you also did some reporting about a statement that the ACLU issued just days after the shooting of Amelia Baca. What are they asking for? Yeah, that's right. So the the, the ACLU brought attention to what they were asking for was an investigation into the police department itself. Uh, specifically, they questioned why a department that reports to have a crisis intervention team, which is meant to respond to these sorts of incidents, uh, was apparently not deployed. There's also some questions about why the the officer made certain choices about his, his use of language and, and how he went about attempting to, you know, I, I don't want to say de-escalate the situation, um, how he wouldn't, how he, I guess, attempted to, to navigate, navigate, yeah. sure. There you go. <laughs> navigate that situation. And, and I mean, in that, that, that uh, produced video that uh, the city put out, the department uh, said that the officer had something like 70 hours of crisis intervention training. And as Sam, Sam Bregman pointed out during the press conference the other day, it, it, was, it was hard to see where any of that de-escalation occurred. The police knew she had dementia before they arrived. Dispatch told them that she was a 75-year-old woman who had dementia. The police knew that Ms. Baca was in crisis. The police were told by Ms. Baca's family multiple times, multiple times, that she was sick 
and they begged that police officer not to shoot her. They said, please be careful with her. Instead of assessing the situation as they are supposedly trained and ordered to do, this police officer shot this 75-year-old grandma twice, execution style, within 38 seconds of arriving at the front door. Police officers are supposed to de-escalate situations, especially with, it, with individuals who are having mental health crises. Instead of de-escalating Miss Baca, instead of de-escalating her, instead of bringing the, everything down a level, this officer immediately began yelling at the top of his lungs, using foul language while pointing his firearm at point-blank range at her. This yelling was all done in English. Ms. Baca is a Spanish speaker. She does not understand English. So, we had no de-escalation. We had no calm voice when that officer arrived. We had the officer not waiting for other officers to arrive at the residence. We had no less lethal force used. And I think that most reasonable people might look at that video and say that this is not what I think of when I think about de-escalating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think Sam Bergman had a really powerful quote where he said that something along, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of, um, you know, if there's, is there anyone in Las Cruces right now who would call the police or who would call 911 if their family member was experiencing a mental health crisis? And I imagine that's a question a lot of people in Las Cruces are asking themselves after seeing that video. Justin, how do we move forward? What are we going to be looking for as as the case moves forward? Well, I think for me, my biggest questions are my biggest questions revolve around um, some of the as the ACLU letter suggested, some of the questions around why certain uh, decisions were made to to not send certain groups out and and what exactly was on the table? What exactly were the options for the police department, knowing that this person was experiencing, you know, had these knives in her hand, but also was experiencing a mental health crisis? I'm curious to know that. I also, I mean, I think we're really looking at, you know, the wrongful death lawsuit will will go forward as it goes forward and, and we'll see how it goes. But I'm really looking to see kind of what the district attorney rules here. Uh, the point of that press conference was, you know, on the one hand to announce that these lawsuits were coming, but the, the big point was that the family was demanding that the district attorney charge this officer with murder. And that's, you know, obviously a choice that the district attorney is going to have to make. The other, and the other thing that's interesting to note on that front is that the officer still hasn't been identified. Yeah. Is that so, unusual in a case like this? Uh, that's a good question. You know, you might have a little better perspective on that than than me. You, you've been in this community longer. And, and was that the same for the Christopher, for the Christopher Smelzer who who and, and who killed uh, Antonio Valenzuela? It feels like we had his name much, much earlier, but I might be mistaken. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see. I think that's another interesting question. Maybe let's go back and look at, compare this to that situation and um, ask that question, you know, 
All we all we know about this officer is that police say he's been on the the he's been with LCPD for nine years, right? Yeah, that's what we know. That's what we've confirmed to be true. There's some other things that we've been told that uh, you know we have reason to believe are true, but you know, as, are, are as not yet reportable. Journal. Yeah, precisely. What do you want to add, Justin, that we haven't talked about so far? Well, I think this situation is is as I said before, it is. You know, setting aside everything else, setting aside all of the legal things that come after this, all of the media things that have come out of it, all of the transparency things, it's very clear that this family has lost someone who was deeply important to them. And they lost her in a horrible, violent way. And uh, I, I think that's something that is really worth reflecting on for our community. Um, is this is this something that we're comfortable with happening at all, regardless of the circumstance? And I hope that's something that people spend some time thinking about and spend some time reflecting on. Um, the other thing is I, I'm, I am hopeful that the investigation into, into the situation by the police department wraps up soon, uh, wraps up sooner rather than later, because I think this community has a lot of questions about, has a lot of questions about it, especially after seeing that video. Well, Justin, thanks again for taking some time to uh, share your reporting with us this week. Yeah, of course. Anytime. It's always it's always interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that's one word for it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of Justin's stories and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Justin for joining us this week. Also, you can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, TuneIn, Stitcher, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me, you can find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thanks for listening.